part of the conversations that happen around my kitchen table. He's John Brannion, and he's been a stand-up comic for more than 30 years. She's Amanda McKinney, and she's been my daughter for her whole life. Our family believes laughter is a gift from God. We often discover it while discussing culture, faith, and family. So go ahead and pull up a chair, neighbor. Can I call you Carl? There's plenty of room here for you. How much time do you need? All right, that's fine. <laughs> Okay, so, uh, hey, what's up, Carl? I got to tell the Peaches what I saw on the way over. We, Peaches and I are kicking it old school this time. We're in the car, mm-hmm. driving to a gig. It's been a long time since we've recorded a podcast in the car. Yeah, you recorded one with Luke a few months ago, but not me. Um, this used to be sort of our thing. Anyway, so I was stopping to get gas, and uh, I pull into the gas station, and I'm facing the car at the pump in front of me they're facing mm-hmm. we're facing opposite directions basically mm-hmm. and so this I'm pumping gas and this uh, lady pulls up in a car and looks like she's got her daughter with her they're both women in the front seat and uh, the door swings open and the lady steps out and her head doesn't go up at all it's like she steps out of the car and she's the <laughs> exact same height as she was when she was sitting in the car uh-huh and it was just, it cracked me up. I just, I, I had to kind of turn, and I didn't want her to think I was laughing at her. But you kind of were. But I kind of was, yeah. because I'd never seen that before, where she, like, her head just moved out of the car and didn't change elevation at all. <laughs> that probably makes it easier to orient herself in space. You think so? Yeah, like, you always know, I mean, you always know exactly, exactly where things are. <laughs> You, you know never, where the ground is. You don't have to make any adjustments yeah. for your height, whether you're sitting down or standing up. Because this is it's weird. The same. I when I got my glasses in like December or January, I don't remember how long I've had them now. I think it was December-ish. Um, I they're not really strong, but like when I first put them on and walked out of the optometrist's office, it's weird. Isn't it, it was weird, yeah. and I knew why too, because there was like this bubble at the bottom. Where I could where I could see where my glasses ended, and if I looked below that, then it would really freak out my right. my eyeballs. But because when I put them on, I feel shorter. So whatever's happening with my lenses, when I wear my glasses, you feel shorter. I the ground seems closer to my body, or it seems closer to my the top of my head, and so it was really hard for me to step down off the curb. Like I about biffed it in the parking lot going to my car after getting my glasses because stepping down off that curb I couldn't figure out where my foot was gonna hit and I still notice it's it's not as obvious now but when I take them off I feel taller too like I was walking the track the other day at the walk the walking track and had my glasses off because they kept fogging up this is really cold well is that just because you just feel taller because everything is blurrier, and so it seems no, farther away. No, it's because whatever it does to your eyeball, where it's like concave or convex, whatever is happening with the lenses, so that the the direction that they're facing, does this make sense? Whatever, whatever is happening with the lenses, if they're if they're jutting out or they're kind of pushed back, I don't know, uh-huh. but it makes everything in my field of vision squeeze in. 
Okay, so it's so going it to be wider. A, it creates a fisheye effect. It's, I think, but it might be like the opposite of a fisheye, where it kind of like... Hey, what would the opposite of a fish be? That's why I'm struggling. <laughs> I'm struggling to describe it. the opposite of a fish? Okay. I never thought about that. Like an eagle? Would I don't that be the know. opposite of a fish? It's, it, there is like a rounding effect that's happening, but it doesn't necessarily make things bigger in the center like it does with a fisheye effect. Mm-hmm. And so, it, but it squeezes everything in a little bit, and then that makes the ground kind of rise up a little bit. Maybe a fly's eye. It's, that would be multiple. Right, but they've got multiple eyes so they can see a bunch of different directions at once. That'd yeah. be the opposite of a fish. It might be, but that would not help me very much with this description of what I see when I put my glasses on. Yeah. Because I don't see multiple things. But but I do see, I seem shorter. I seem like I'm closer to the ground. But when you step out of a car, your head goes up, right? Yes. Okay. It does, but not as much as it feels like it does when I have my glasses you have off. you glasses off. If they're off, then I feel taller. And people, I am fairly tall. A lot of For people. For a woman. Yeah. Not, I'm not like, I'm like 5'7". Right. But I feel shorter with my glasses on. So... You're the tallest of the uh, sisters, aren't you? Well, there's only two of us, so it wasn't necessarily... I mean, I'm including Marla and Aunt Megan. Oh, yeah, I am. They're like all, all fairly of them, short. All of the women in the family. Like, Megan and Marla are both I know you're taller short. than Teresa. Are you taller than your mom? Uh, I think I may be about the same height as mom. I think she's 5'7". I don't remember. I think that's right. Yeah. So, uh, we were talking about... Um, agreeable and disagreeable. Yes. And how uh, how it helps women. And then we we were talking about Carl before I turned the recorder on. That uh, there are certain skills that women learn. That Peaches was actually talking about this. Certain skills that people that women learn by being mothers. Yeah. That they aren't necessarily learning anymore because uh, they're not being moms anymore. Right. Right. Yeah, I would say I would be one of the ones who has learned how to be more personable and agreeable as a result of parenting. Of, of having to manage children yeah. who are because, very disagreeable. Like, in college, I knocked it out of the park. Like, when I was in school, I school was where I, I didn't even have to try because I had the ability to manage my own time. I had executive functioning. That's what they call it when you can, Right, you, you didn't know. have to... Nobody else, your your schedule and your activities didn't depend on somebody else doing right. something. It's not a team effort it in wasn't most a team. cases. It's right. just me competing against my own, you know, my own best ability. Right. You set things. your own schedule, you set your own agenda, you yeah. set your own priorities. You, you do could all of that. say that I had to get on a team of sorts with my professors. So I did have interpersonal skills that would come into play when I was trying to get to know the different styles and like teaching styles of various teachers I had over time but um I I did that pretty well and then the rest of the time it was more just like just like what's the word dogged determination like stubbornness and like the ability to delay gratification all those things those are those are executive skills and the ability to be a manager. And usually managers are more masculine. Like, that's that's just how we classify or characterize those skills. And so I did those skills well as a young lady 
prior to having kids. Well, but you, you were, your point was that women have to manage households, and they have to, they have to yes, operate with, with all of these little people skills. that don't respect their manage, right. well, managerial that's, position. Right. That's managing in general. Manager leaders are always the most mature people in the in the group, and so that means that you're going to, by default, be managing a bunch of immature people. So that happens in the workforce, too. Or that's why people get frustrated. Managers, especially, get frustrated because they're... Because people got don't people, do what they do. Right. You've got <laughs> See, people showing up like late. People and, won't behave like little managers. Right. They don't. They behave like little babies. Like <laughs> little people who need to be managed. No, but that comes in a little bit later. What I was saying was that when the babies are, like, brand spanking new, I mean, like, newborns to six months old or so... They're extremely dependent. You can't talk to them yet. And they're still too small. I mean, they're learning things at a very, very rapid pace. But it, you can't just give a mom lecture. You know, you can't you can't call a team meeting with the six-month-old and be like, all right, listen, all right, some kid, things you got to change around here. Like, you're you're going to have to step it up. Right. You're basically completely at their mercy. And that, I was wondering lately if that's been why my sisters and I have had a particularly bad case of postpartum depression and anxiety when we bring dependence into the world before they're like two three four years old and we're able to do you know the the manager role with them before that it's just 100 percent service servitude i mean you're a slave (laughs) you're a slave to this baby all you can do is is do stuff to try to appease them yep to try to make them content yep and it's purely emotional i mean it's one it's not rational and it's not logical it's just this baby's crying or or you know uncomfortable somehow and so now i have to do all this stuff to try to fix it to make this baby happy yeah and it's it's really jarring it's not my favorite thing i don't i do not like taking care of babies and there are some women who actually do they feel very needed and so their favorite phase of all is when their babies are 100% like what I said was like little accessories they're like little handbags that you kind of carry with you all the time and everybody compliments you on how yeah. cute they are because they are cute they're, they they've are. got these like massive eyeballs and some of them some of them are cute some yeah. of them are a little frightening Probably, yeah so <laughs> some of them are not as cute but yeah. but they're still they're still um they're small, and so there's something adorable about a small about little thing. Things. Yeah, right. <laughs> a little human. Even a little ugly human is even, still a little cute. Even little lizard people are still right. sort of endearing in a way. Yeah. Yeah. So they they've got that going for them, but but I do, I'm not very nurturing. I, I don't prefer to be nurturing. I prefer to be somebody who holds domineering. Hold other people accountable, yeah. <laughs> I, I prefer to be authoritarian. I do. I do prefer to be authoritarian. And I really do believe that's good for the babies, too. But they have to get to a certain a certain level right. of they development. Can't, they can't respond to authoritarianism until they reach a certain age. Right. Right. And so one of the things that Jordan Peterson et al. were talking about, because it was a Daily Wire discussion about exodus i think and somehow they got around to like government systems and various theories about um organizing um list leadership like organizing systems of leadership and how there are a lot of people who think that because women are so great at being compassionate and empathetic to their very very small people 
that that would scale, and so then women would make the best managers of larger, you know, humans. People. Larger people. Older humans. Older, more mature people. And what they're saying is, that's not the case. Right. And th- what's funny is that um, conservatives tend to, they tend to make better managers because they hold people accountable as if they're more mature. And so they tend to make they tend to make better managers because they literally make more managers. They reproduce themselves. And and with their leadership style ends up resulting in more people having that same leadership style. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. So they yeah. duplicate themselves because their style of leading results in more leaders. Whereas a woman, I guess I should say a feminine leadership style, which is actually not leadership at all, but like... Results in more little people who are afraid to speak yes. up because they've been... Yes. They've been browbeaten and well, quote-unquote managed it to the point where they they can't make a decision by themselves. No. They have no confidence. It results they, in more coddling. And so people oh. people like to be managed. It's way easier to be this not from read from this leadership. Because it must be the least person in your system than to be the most mature person in a very immature system. Isn't that our whole culture now? (laughs) Don't we just have millions of people who want to be taken care of? Yes. Yes. So that was the point of that discussion, was why is it that, that a very motherly, nurturing, caregiving individual does not make the best middle manager or upper manager. Why are they, why are they not producing because more passion people? They don't duplicate themselves. They duplicate themselves. They ain't deep this. And as the people that are, the nurture, are not encouraged, right. they, they don't have a manager in their life to tell them, hey, you need to step up and right. stop stop being an immature Right. Uh, you need to do what I'm doing instead right. of expecting me to do what I'm doing for you for the rest of your existence. Yeah. You become an adult and then they speak to the adult and meet up here every time. Right. Well, remember uh, we'll go talk about the <laughs> Shasta McGuire. <laughs> yeah, I wrote about Shasta, except I used her actual name right. because I'm I not think, weird. I think we can. <laughs> I think we can do that now because uh, the Peaches and I were talking about that, and she said that basically you should call people out by name. Well, specifically, I wrote about Sheila McGregor this week on my blog, and while Sheila McGregor, while I was doing my research for my blog post, it's Sheila Ray McGregor, by the way. Yeah, no, it's Gregor. It's not McGregor. Sheila Sorry. Ray Gregor. Sheila Ray Gregor. Sheila Ray Gregoire. While I was doing research for that blog post I wrote, uh-huh. and by research I mean I scrolled on her social media feed because apparently <laughs> that's how women do science. That's how we do research now. If I had the time, I would have scrolled on 7,000 women's social media feeds in order to do research for my blog post, but I didn't. That's what she did for her book. She did a survey of 7,000 evangelical women so that now the marketing team can tell everyone the book is research-based. Well, and so my question is, yeah. and when, I want to get into that, but is she, um, is she a manager or is she nurturing her, um, her legions of women? I'll have to give that some more thought because it's complicated. First of all, what I found when I did my research was that she does like a weekly podcast. Sheila's got a podcast too. And in that podcast, she actually has a segment on calling people out by name. Right. Which is so ironic because you were like taking great pains to not... To, to not 
get a whole bunch of controversy around the person and have it just right. let's talk about Turns the topic. Out that's instead. how she makes a living. Turns out that that's the whole appeal. Like her followers are there because over time she has called out like every evangelical Everybody. man yeah. and a few women. To, well, like, I had a couple of just a, just point of point of reference here. I had a conversation with one of those. Uh, influential evangelical authors yeah. a couple of years ago. Yeah, Carl, I know who it is. And uh, and he said, "Oh, actually, I had a conversation with two of them. I know, I know two of them. I, I have conversations with two of the authors that she has that gone she has to war with. under the bus. Before, and yeah. one of them actually said to me, "Oh, do not engage with her. Do not engage yeah. with her." <laughs> And I'm like, why? He goes, oh, she will just... She'll chew you she'll up and spit you out. She'll just chew you up and spit you out and yeah. send her legions after you. And I'm like, okay. But this is a guy who's got a platform that's many, 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 many times larger than mine. Yeah. And I asked him, I said, well, what about your people? I mean, what, why are you worried about her people when you've got at you've least got as many people... As she does. You have people. You got people too. So what are you? What are you afraid of? Yeah. And I, he didn't really answer that question. Other than, I, what I suspect is that his people are not accustomed to doing battle the same way Sheila's people That's are. That's probably partially accustomed true. Accustomed to it. But I also think that that the um, the influencer himself or herself sets that tone. Make, it makes a difference, and I think that most evangelical men are more agreeable than most evangelical women. Now, I'm talking about authors and influencers here. If you have a book, if you're somebody who wrote a book and has a, a platform, and you want to make a living as a speaker, and you're, you know, you're out there, you're putting your voice out there all the time. Mm -hmm. You are probably, uh, you probably have some disagreeable traits. You, you have, you have to have some thickness of skin, especially if you're going to grow the platform at all, um, and if you've been in the arena for years and years and years, then you are used to criticism, and the yeah, only way that you can, be. yes, and so the only way you can get used to it, or the only way that you can still continue to publish books despite the criticism, is if you develop a certain <coughs> toughness, you know, certain thickness of skin. Well, why don't these guys have that with Sheila? Why are they afraid of her? Um... I think because, because these guys have been authors for a long time, and they've even been criticized by people. and And if I was to criticize them, they would not hesitate to come back at me. I think it's the same reason that these tough, tough talking, you know, strong spine women are afraid to parent their own children. I think it's the same exact reason. So you, they have no problem looking up at the person who's supposed to be an authority above them and wagging their fingers and being like, you church, you've done such terrible things. Or like in the case of a male pastor or author, they have no problem punching other men. I think it's the punch up, punch down phenomenon is what I'm... They feel like they're punching down? Yes. They feel like if they were to, if they were to attack Sheila they would be accused of hitting a girl. And there might be a little bit to that. There might be some people who would say that it was unfair. Sheila would never say that, would she? Would she ever accuse them of punching down if she if um, they criticized her? She she would somehow find a way. She's always going to find a way to make herself the victim. And so she would find a way to make this like a church-wide... 
you you never take a story of something that happened to you and just be like, here's a thing that happened only to me. She would write a book about how like this has been a this pervasive issue women. for all women for right. all time. That's yeah. that is a that is a pretty common thing in the culture. Yeah. Well, it's because we have a feminized culture. Well, Christian, you know, the number of memes that I've seen now about, well, I wish we lived in a country where you could open the wrong, knock on the wrong door and not get shot. Right. And it's like, uh, we, we do, do live in that country. Right. But, of course, now there's that one instance that happened to one person. Right. And, and so that's become the norm for our entire culture. Right. Well, and that's basically what this book is. This She Deserves Better book. They, they surveyed 7,000 women. And I don't even say random women because a randomized study actually has a little bit more authority than a, than a survey of 7,000 evangelical women who are likely to be following Sheila Ray Greger. That's a completely different... That's not a randomized group at all. That's no. predominantly emotional, bitter, you know... What's the word when you when you believe a lot of personal fables? When you're very self-absorbed, and and also like that's the lens through which you see. That's narcissist, isn't it? Is it? What's the word solipsistic? What's that? Oh, I don't know. Oh, I might have to look it up because it's a good word. Though. I feel like that's the word. I'm. That's the word that wants to come out, and that doesn't always mean that's right. Oh, you know what? We didn't tell Carl about Tabby. <laughs> about Tabby telling me. <laughs> About the uh, cacophony of noise or the cacophony of toys that were on her floor. Oh my gosh, it just killed me. Uh, anyway, well, so what are you doing? Are you looking Solip- up solipsistic now? Solipsism that- is the quality of being very self centered or selfish, the view or theory that the self is all that can be known to exist. But that's where it started in philosophy, and now it basically just means a person who everything becomes about them. So every story is a is ultimately a you know, it's a microcosm of what is really my story all what's, the time. What's the well, but the, but that's it's that's not exactly solipsistic because what you're describing is where my personal experience is a microcosm of the human experience right. in general. Right. And so if you are going to pull seven thousand women, evangelical women, about how they feel about modesty and church teachings and what they were taught growing up, if you're gonna pull them, it matters if you're talking to women who are who are managerial, self-starting, like responsibility taking people, the kinds of people who work on themselves first and blame themselves first. Right. Or are they people who tend to be solipsistic, where it's like, well, these are things that happen to me. They see themselves as passive, and the world acts upon them instead of taking charge of their own world. Right. That matters. It matters what kind of personality well, sure, these people sure, have. Sure, sure. But I'm I'm saying that the people who are who were describing, the, I, I don't know what the word is for when you see. When I see my life as representative of everybody's life, like whatever I'm going through, everybody's going through this. Um, Versus, yeah, and that, that there is some of that I think, but also they the women the women who tend to fill out these surveys <laughs> they tend to say not everybody has this experience, but if you don't have this experience, it doesn't matter because. The fact that I have had this experience means this is what we're going to talk about right now. And if you're not talking about this, you're part of the problem. Right. So they don't necessarily well, that say... That just sounds like good old-fashioned narcissism. Right, me. it is. It's very similar. There are a lot of overlaps. But, but yeah, it's the idea that, like, 
I, what happens to me is what really matters. So even if you don't have a similar story to mine, it doesn't matter. Just be quiet and listen to my story because my story is the one that we're going to write a book about. And so I would suggest that Sheila Ray Gregoire is creating more Sheila Ray Gregoires. Yes. So, so she's actually duplicating herself. Well, yes, but she's not... She's not coddling Yes. No, 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 audience. no. You're misunderstanding. When I say that somebody who has a coddling style doesn't duplicate themselves, I don't mean that they don't duplicate their coddling style. Okay. I'm saying... They don't do... The managers duplicate their managerial styles. Coddlers duplicate their... They also duplicate their managing style, much whatever it is. To, to a, yeah, they do, to an extent. They're not creating managers, though. They're not creating responsible, adult, mature people. They she, are, isn't she creating somebody who's going to write books just like her? Yes, that is going to happen. But it's not. they're not going to be mature in the faith. They're not going to be mature Christians. They're going to be perpetual crybabies. And what's weird about our culture and where it becomes complicated is that in our culture, the person who has the power is the victim and the crybaby. Right. So she is creating powerful people in that sense. She's she, Her readers are being given some sort of, um, I guess, they're given strategy. Tool. They're given yeah. tools. They're, they're being taught how to be, how to become... I don't want to use the word leader. Right, it's but not the, leadership. They're not leaders, but they're definitely inf- influential. But they are leading, right. They're not, it's not good leadership. It's toxic. She's creating toxic females, more toxic females. And so her response to her perceived, you know, issues, perceived problems with the patriarchy is to create a matriarchy, which is every bit as abusive and every bit as dysfunctional, but it does have certain... Uh, things different <laughs> does have certain qualities right, that are different from the say that. She wouldn't say that it's toxic and she wouldn't say it's yeah. dysfunctional. She would say it's the proper it is a measured and appropriate response to the abuse that women have suffered right. for decades in church. Right. Well, and I would agree it is a response and I would agree that it was you know appropriate if I wasn't watching in real time all of these women becoming less and less and less capable of taking care of themselves. I mean, women are becoming less confident. They're becoming less competent as mothers and as sisters and as wives and as church members. They're not, they're not functioning. And so the more we write books like this and read them and recommend them, the more we find ourselves depressed and anxious and all of the right. stuff that she claims that, you well, know, was the de- result of, of 30 years ago be- teaching. Because the solution that she's providing ultimately depends on men behaving a certain way. That's, right? Yeah. I mean, you can't... The, the, the ability to make changes is out of the women's hands. It requires men being shamed yeah. into allowing women to preach and allowing yeah. women to do whatever it is they want to do. So, so the, the solution that Sheila's proposing is, doesn't even lie with women. Yeah. They're completely dependent on men. Right. Yeah, um, I think that's true. Behaving themselves a certain way. Yeah, I think that's true, and that makes sense if you recall that we talked about children, dependents, being unable to do anything except cry. Women, when they say, we want to be able to raise our voice and say what we mean and have people listen, what they mean is we want to be able to cry like a newborn and have somebody else put a bottle in our mouth. Right, but that yeah. requires a mother. Right, and that so now they're trying to turn being... their husbands and their and their pastors into 
what they believe is the best kind of mother, which if you're dealing with newborns is, but it's actually abusive to keep a child in the newborn phase for their entire existence. I mean, that's, right. that's right. stunting you're keeping, them. <laughs> you're keeping them locked away in a tower right. um, forever. Oh, yeah. But, but even, even the concept, even the title of the book, she deserves better. Well, if you're... If you deserve something, then that means that somebody has to give you a thing. That's right. that you're going to be, you're dependent on somebody giving you whatever it is you think you deserve. Right. Well, and the book is supposed to be um, a manual, a tool for women today to read in order to know how to... Browbeat the people around them. No, how to interact. It's supposed to be for people who have daughters of their own. Oh. Like, so for youth ministers, but also especially parents to read so that they know how to raise strong women. Um, but, but yeah, I'm here to say that in another 20 years, this experiment of hers is going to fail spectacularly. She is not raising strong women. She's raising loud women. She's raising girls who are very good at weaponizing their tears in order to get what they want. Right. But that's not the same as a strong woman, and that's not the same as a mature woman. So mothers actually have a really, really challenging goal. I mean, it's, they have to be kind of chameleons. They have to grow with their children. And it's challenging to know whether your child is in the completely dependent phase or the phase where they can have a little bit more independence, but they also still need tons and tons of guidance. Or are you dealing with somebody who's a teenager and is almost ready to leave your nest? And, and now you have to be almost hands off, but like still knowing when to come in and offer, you know, wisdom. I mean, it's hard. It's it's hard. It would be so much easier if your babies stayed in the bottle phase forever. Um, and and that's where a lot of I my heart goes out to women who don't know how to it'd talk to easier, their middle schoolers. Right, that's their, what you said. It'd be easier yeah. if they stayed in the bottle stage forever. Yeah, yeah. because then you if, wouldn't if have basically, to keep changing. Sure. Well, if, if children were basically pets, if, yes. if they were if they <laughs> right. were dogs or hamsters. To right. where you could get them into a routine and they were happy to stay in that routine and yep. they never changed. That was one of my very first... Never had to teach them to read. That was my very, very one of my very first pieces of advice for my sister when she became a mother. And I had been one for a few years. Um, I said, just know, like, because she was like, well, how do I know what she needs? How do I know if I should, you know, if I should put her down for a nap or feed her? Or if I should, you know, is she too hot or is she too hot? How do I know these things? And I said, well, you try different things. And then I said, but if you've tried it all and, and she's still unhappy, it's totally okay to just put the baby in a crib and let, let her, her fuss for a while. Yeah. And she's like, well, but, but how do I know? And I said, if she stops crying after a few minutes, then there you go. Then you know. And I said, and you know, you'll start to develop a routine. But, but just when you start feeling comfortable with that routine. It will change. Baby is going to have a growth spurt physically or her brain's going to start growing. And suddenly she's going to act like she needs less sleep or more food or, you know, more interaction from you, more playtime. And and you're just going to have to be re ready to be flexible with that. Like, don't count, just because baby slept six hours in a row on Tuesday night and Wednesday night and Thursday night doesn't mean that, you know, by Friday she's not going to be nursing every 45 minutes again. And, like, it's really maddening. I understand wanting to have more of a formula with this whole child-rearing thing. But just accept that they don't stay in the same routine for very long before it's time to grow with them. And your parenting grows as they grow. So... Well, but what... And, right. And so what you're suggesting is that to tell children uh, that 
girls specifically that they have gotten the short end of the stick and mm-hmm. it's it's time to put a stop to it and you need to stand up for yourself and put it into this quote-unquote abuse yeah um that's a thing that you don't that's not necessarily the proper prescription for all children or for all girls all the time right everywhere throughout Christendom. Right. Now, it won't be the proper prescription for most girls ever, <laughs> and it won't be the proper right. prescription for even abused girls for more than just a very short season. Um, if, if you try to, to sell this book to millions of people because you think it's going to be the, the key to successful parenting, and you're going to change the world with your new perspective on purity and consent Every and girl is a victim. Like that's just gonna backfire. It's not gonna work out because you're all you're going to do now is give fuel to a particular fire. Right. That that's going to keep right. babies Which, babies. And see the argument that will be when uh, when this podcast comes out, uh, the argument will be, well, John, Mandy, you'll be the one who gets in trouble. Yeah, uh, <laughs> probably not. But okay. it, like there's like <laughs> nobody's abused. Is that what you said? It sounds like you're saying nobody's abused. It sounds like you're saying. And, and that's not what we're saying. What we're saying is that everybody is not abused. And there's a, that's not the same as saying nobody's abused. Well, but I you would... need to deal with abused people who are really abused. Right, and, as it comes. And deal with it as it comes. Right. And then adapt. Actually, then... what I'm saying, to be very clear, is not that no one's abused. What I'm saying is that Sheila is making it easier for girls to abuse boys. And, and it will happen. Well, that's that's going to happen yeah. because now we're playing in and we're feeding the worst sins and temptations of several young ladies. We're feeding into it. We're empowering the worst behavior, the most immature characteristics. We're trying to we're feeding that immaturity. We're making narcissism and selfishness righteousness. Yes. And that's, that's not going to end that's well. A good thing to do. I mean, you you can have a woman who is now physically an adult, but is spiritually and emotionally a stunted newborn, and that's not going to go well because now she's going to see herself in a particular way all the time. She's going to view herself as mature when she's immature, and um, and right. that's a recipe for disaster. So I'm trying to empower women the way that. The way that scripture says we make disciples. I'm trying to empower women by helping them recognize the, the monster that lives within themselves. That's right. sin nature. Well, and, and to recognize, and this is, I, I'm agreeing with what you're saying. Yeah. That the only people who can abuse people are empowered people. Right. So when you talk about becoming an empowered woman, you're basically asking for the ability to abuse people. Well, you're asking for, yeah, you're asking for responsibility, you're asking for accountability, um, you're asking for power, literally it's in the word empowerment, right. and with that power comes what? Comes um, the, yeah, like you're saying, the ability to then oppress right. somebody. You have, and maturity is, is yeah. a thing that you should have before you seek empowerment. And, and, but it's intoxicating. The idea of getting power, having power over people, is certainly appealing. Right. I mean, there's something that resonates with all people, not right. just girls. But, uh, but yeah, when you're asking to become an empowered woman, nobody, none of these authors talk about, well, at least Sheila doesn't talk about, the responsibility that, goes that comes with, it, with right. that. Yeah, well, the and The fact that's... that you're now going to be in the position to where you could theoretically become a, an abuser. Right. And have and are. It's not even a theory. It's not even a theory anymore. Yeah, women are 
are rapidly becoming abusive more often than um, the men are. Because they have power. Because they have the power. And because they're not being talked to about that responsibility, like you say. And so that's where I would agree that she does deserve better. She deserves better because what we're doing with our boys is we're assuming, and we talked about this last week, we're assuming that the boys have a sin nature. We're assuming there is a beast within them and we're helping them curb it. The Bible talks a lot about that. But if you talk about that in the presence of a woman, she will scream and say, you're abusive, you're misogynistic, you're doing, you know, you won't listen to me. Or or she'll say, what about the boys? That's what what I normally get. Whenever I write anything about girls, specifically girls, somebody always shows up, or several somebody show up in the comment section and say, what about the boys? Why don't you say this to the boys? You will will not believe this. You probably haven't seen it. This was episode, let's see, episode 188 of the Bear Marriage podcast that dropped today. Which used to be to love, honor, and vacuum. Sheila and Keith were talking, and they said, "If she said, if women are always, quote, complaining and criticizing, complaining and criticizing, what should a husband do? If a woman is always complaining and criticizing, complaining and criticizing. He should give in to those complaints. Hear her? Wait, let me guess. He should hear her. Ah. Stop doing the thing that she is complaining about, because God gave her that sensitivity to know you're, when things are off. You're going a little too far. You're justifying it too much. You don't need to justify. He just needs to listen. He just needs to listen. He needs so, to hear what she says. She says, Keith and I looked at an Instagram reel recently that told husbands that if their wife is complaining, the husband should see beyond the words to what the real issue is. Ah, and it's probably going to be him. Well, no. They were mad about this podcast, just so you know. They were criticizing that podcast where the guy said to look beyond the issue to what the real issue is. Because it's... Because that he was being dismissive of her words? Is that the problem? Um, you should always believe whatever women say? Yeah, yeah. She says, why are we assuming that the woman doesn't mean what she's saying? Ah, okay. As one commenter on my blog put it today, maybe what their wives are saying is what they are really saying. If I'm asking my husband not to walk through the house with his muddy outdoor boots on, I'm asking him not to track mud through the house, not to start, quote, leading with courage. If I'm asking my husband to put the milk isn't, back in the isn't fridge... Isn't that straw manning the point? Isn't it? I mean, would would the guy who made that video, if if she says, "Don't walk through the house with your muddy boots on," would he go? You need to look past what she's saying to the real problem. In that instance, yeah, because because here's why: because that man on that podcast has put the milk away and put the boots where they go, and his wife is still a still grouchy witch. Yep, she's still unhappy, <laughs> and even she is still trying to figure out what it is that's a problem. Because she was told by Sheila Gregor that if her husband just put his boots away, she'd feel happy. And she's still not happy. She's still crying like a newborn who's been given the milk and given the clothes and given the warm blanket and given the pacifier and is still fussy. And so, yeah, men, some men, are trying to give some encouragement to other new fathers who are married to a woman that they thought was mature but is actually in the newborn stage. And she cries constantly. And so he is trying to help help, you know, offer help to his but fellow husband. But when you look husbands. past what her words are, what's he suggesting? That she's just in a mood? And you oh, I don't know. I didn't listen to that podcast that no. had them upset, but I do think it's interesting that that she says, why on earth is it so hard for these marriage experts to realize that women can actually mean what they say? There isn't necessarily some obscure hidden message behind, please turn your music volume down, or could you put your dirty laundry in the basket instead of on the floor? And it's like, okay, here's why it's hard for them to believe that 
women actually mean what they say. Because they've turned the music down, they put the boots where they belong, they put the clothes in the hamper, and you're yeah. still harping And she's at me. still an unlikable yeah. brat. True. Yep. That's why. And so I, I need to say this to women. I need women to hear this because, again, I want to empower them. I want to help them move beyond the newborn stage. I want to help them take responsibility for their own gas pains instead of screaming at everyone in the house at 4 a.m. because somebody needs to rock me. Like, I need them to understand that that is absolutely nagging. If you're, if you're, please do this and please do this and please do that, and then you're going to be mad at him and blog about it if he doesn't, that's nagging. That's not something that, that's something children do, babies do, but that's not something that a grown woman is supposed to do. And if you want to be empowered, you have to take responsibility instead of continually trying to nag your husband into doing all the hard stuff while you just let him know what you think you need all the time. All all day. that time. Every day. Do we have do we have time for a uh, analogy? Well, oh. yeah. <laughs> do you need to go to the bathroom? I absolutely have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> I wasn't so thinking that at all. Here, but, but yeah, we have time for an analogy. I mean, this is we're, we're driving. Carl, we, can, I we have I, bonus content. I mentioned that. Yeah, we still got we still got time. We'll have bonus content this week. Yeah. So I'm reading Prince Caspian. Okay. First time I've ever read further in the Narnia series than The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. I've read The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe multiple times, and I just read that one out loud to my kids a few weeks ago we finished it. And right. so then we started Prince Caspian, because that's the next one in the series. Um, I, I'm trying to decide... I, I don't want to say, oh, I'm not going to do any spoilers, because honestly, it was stupid that I haven't read it until now, and Carl really needs to have read it by now, too, so... Oh, so you're going to you're going to go ahead and spoil it if, if he is... Well, I'm not going to try not to. I mean, the, the beauty of the story is not even the surprises or, you know, the, the plot points. The right. beauty is just how, how accurate it all is. C.S. Lewis was really, really good at recognizing the way that people behave, like these different personality traits. Right. And that's what I was going to bring up. He had a way of writing all four of the children. Oh, what was their last name? No, I can't remember. The British last name children. Um, he had a way of writing them so that they each had their own struggles and their own temptations. And we have very agreeable people. Lucy is very agreeable. She's the youngest. Youngest children are often very. And agreeable. Edmund is. Edmund was the most disagreeable in Lion Witch in the Wardrobe, and that's what I'm. That's what I'm getting at here. Um, it's. <laughs> <laughs> we just pulled into the rest park, and I'm like, where is it? Where, where All right, I'm going to hit pause. Okay, we're back, Carl. Uh, I had to go to the bathroom, and it wasn't an emergency. And what Peaches an had emergency? to go, too, so it's not like yeah, it's I not said, like it was a waste of time. I said, Continue now on I-70 wow. West for 23 miles. Go on I-70 West for 20 miles! Uh, I was saying that that ought to get us another 15 miles or so with that little... That little stop. So Dad is the one. Dad's the one who we had to stop about 15 miles away from Kokomo on the way to the Fight Laugh Feast conference last year. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we had a van full of children who were all just coasting along with no problems, and then all of a sudden Dad whips over <laughs> off the exit, and we followed him. We're like, "What's the matter? I have to go to the bathroom." <laughs> Again, the worst one was, I think, when we were on our way to the FLF conference. Yeah. We had just gotten... That's what I'm talking about. Oh, but I thought there was another time. Because you guys didn't follow me on the first time. Yeah, we did. 
Well, you pulled you pulled over. No, there was two. T- there was two times. <laughs> One time you guys followed me, but the other time I had to go all by myself because I couldn't admit it. I was following you, and I didn't want to admit that I had to go because we just left the house we like just left ten minutes earlier. But we saw it. Yeah. We saw it, and then we decided to go. Or we it's weird. You. Like my bladder goes from zero to full in minutes. Well, that's what I was saying. You asked. You said it was an emergency, and I was. I was like, well, what would be an emergency? I said I was uncomfortable, but you're you're always uncomfortable when you have to go at all. Right. And, but I said I wasn't. I didn't have tears in my eyes, <laughs> and I wasn't like worried for my pants. <laughs> right. I was okay. Right. Well, <laughs> as far as that be, goes, it's, it's got to get really, really bad before. <laughs> I've had some really uncomfortable situations. Oh, I have too. I've been in the car. There's nothing worse than being in a car with a full bladder. And especially if you're all alone. Or if you're not all alone. If you're in the car with other people, that's when it's bad. If you're, if I'm by myself, it's like, okay, I'm just going to pull over and, and I'll be able to you know, take care of this at the next gas station. But when there's other people, it's like, hey, would you guys mind pulling over? <laughs> It's not an emergency or anything. It's not an emergency. He says, very amicably, but with tears in his eyes. (laughs) I don't want to be a bother. It's like, gosh, why are your eyes yellow? Take your time. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, hey, there's a dead deer. That's really, really destroyed. Yeah. Uh, All right, so we've uh, we've covered Sheila Ray. Well, no. We're talking about uh, Prince Caspian. I haven't oh, forgotten. Yeah, okay. Have you, did you read Prince Caspian? Nope. <gasps> you haven't? No. Oh, this is good. Okay, then we are going to do some spoilers. I think I've admitted before that I'm not a huge fan of the uh, fiction. Of C.S. Lewis? C.S. Lewis does. Okay, I'm but, not a huge fan. Okay, but... I like C.S. Lewis, but go ahead. You have to... Like, I'm reading it out loud to my children, okay? Okay. And that's a whole different experience because... I've been talking to Colin specifically about this idea of responsibility. And and I told him just recently, you want to be a man someday. And I said, I'll know that you're a man when you are willing to take responsibility even when it would be easier to pass the blame for something. And he, he's mad about that because he's a boy still. And he goes, so you mean that she does everything right and I do everything wrong? And I said, no, I mean that it's right for you to tell me what you do wrong instead of focusing on what she does wrong. It's right for you to take responsibility in a situation where there's a whole bunch of kids squabbling and you're one of them. If you rise above the group by saying, I'm sorry, it was me, I did this, this, and this, and you don't point fingers at someone else, that's how I'm going to know that you're a man. That's what I told him. And so we had that conversation like two weeks ago, you know, and, and we've kind of referenced it a couple of times since then, just the in-depth conversation was a couple of weeks ago. So So you're reading Prince Caspian. Friday. Thanks for visiting the Comedian's House. If you